Uh, good evening, everyone. Hope you can all hear me. So, welcome to the first Lincoln League session. The first Lincoln League session ever, actually. Today, we ask a question Are we taught to become economically viable products? What is the purpose of education? We have a great panel before us to speak to us on the matter. We have Professor Margaret Stevens, Senior Research Fellow, Lincoln College, Ms. Garima Jaju, MCR student, and Mr. David Weston, Chief Executive, Teacher Development Trust. My name is Sudhish. I'm your chair for the evening. I'm a DPhil fresher at the Department of International Development and a member of the Lincoln MCR. We will have each speaker speaking to us for 15 minutes, following which we will open the floor to the, for questions. So without any further ado, let's jump into the discussion. Are we taught to become economically viable products? What is the purpose of education? I was looking up the Sustainable Development Goals and found that target, one of the targets of Goal 4 on education tries to get everyone into tertiary level education in the universities by 2030. And I mean, the question that ran in my mind was, what it will be that the purpose of that education? And I'm sure this question is something that everyone amongst us uh, would have asked at some point or the other in our careers. I first invite Professor Margaret Stevens to speak to us. Professor Stevens is a Senior Research Fellow at Lincoln College and a Professor of Economics in the University, where she has taught since 1993. Her research interests are in labor economics and public economics, and she has an exciting new project going on called Code Econ, which is a collaboration of university professors around the world uh, trying to put up a new introductory economics course based on new research in the field. You can check it out on www.core-econ.org. So over to you, Professor. Thank you very much. This is a really big question. Uh, are we taught to become economically viable products? What is the purpose of education? Um, we haven't been prepped for this session. We were just given the question. Uh, and so I'm sure we're all going to interpret it in different ways. I've chosen to interpret it as a kind of challenge from people who believe in education to economists who seem to have tried to uh, muscle in on the debate on higher education policy in the UK and uh, certainly have, have increasingly um, prevailed in that debate. Um, and because I don't have very much time, um, I thought I'd start by giving you an answer. It's not my answer. Um, it comes from Stefan Collini's book, What Are Universities For?, which was published in 2012. Um, and Collini was uh, uh, very much uh, taking on um, the, uh, what he called um, economistic philistinism um, that, that um, pervaded uh, UK higher education policy uh, nowadays. Um, and it seemed to him to be a threat to the idea of a university. And this is a, a direct quote from his book, and I think he, he answers our question really very nicely. So I'll read the quote. A society does not educate the next generation in order for them to contribute to its economy. It educates them in order that they should extend and deepen their understanding of themselves and the world, acquiring in the course of this form of growing up kinds of knowledge and skill which will be useful in their eventual employment, but which will no more be the sum of their education and employment is the sum of their lives. Um, I think that's actually pretty near perfect um, as an answer to the question, so I could stop there. Um, but uh, instead, um, since I'm expected to, to fill the time, um, I will uh, 
interpret um, this as, to some extent, an, an, an attack, um, as Kalina presents it, on the idea of undertaking an economic analysis of education um, and the way this has influenced um, the debate. So let me just kind of summarise for you the sort of standards, uh, simplistic, if you like, um, economists' approach to thinking about this. Um, first of all, what are we concerned with as economists? We're concerned with um, the way uh, resources are created in society and distributed amongst people in society. Um, so the kinds of questions we're interested in are to do with the fact that resources are scarce, um, certainly education is a scarce resource, um, who gets it and how does it benefit them. And uh, the kind of analysis we do will begin by thinking of education as an investment, first of all, um, in the sense that the costs of education are mainly born now, in the present, while you are being educated, and the benefits um, will come later, hopefully throughout your lives. They're somewhat uncertain, um, but you will benefit in some way, we hope, uh, from being educated. So this kind of cost-benefit analysis approach to uh, uh, education, uh, what we need to do is to identify the costs and benefits, um, and think about in particular who bears the costs and who receives the benefits. So those are the sorts of economic questions that would be behind uh, questions of higher education policy. Let's start with costs. And costs of a university education, higher education in uh, um, uh, a university like Oxford, are pretty high. Um, there's been an estimate around for quite a few years um, uh, uh, of what it costs to educate an Oxford undergraduate um, of about £15,000 per year. Uh, that estimate's at least 10 years old, um, so let's assume it's somewhat higher than that now. So that's one of those kind of direct costs, the cost of the teaching resources, are one of the costs to society um, of an undergraduate being educated. Uh, secondly, there are the opportunity costs, the standard economic term, uh, meaning um, the, uh, 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 the, the value of the opportunity you forego by undertaking uh, um, this investment in education. So what are you foregoing by being educated here at the moment? Um, you're foregoing uh, uh, the value of using your time in some other way. Probably one of the things you would have been doing with your time um, would be working. Um, so let's say for an Oxford undergraduate, they might have been able to um, around 20,000 a year working. And then there are the non-monetary costs. Um, the effort that goes into your education, that you put into your education, possibly um, a stress your experience from being here. And no doubt you can think of other costs too um, associated with, that, that you have incurred um, associated with your education. Now these costs in general, um, in higher education, uh, uh, they may be borne entirely by the individual. Um, and some of you may be bearing very high costs or perhaps with the help of your families uh, to be here. Um, very often those costs are shared between the individual and someone else, and very often in higher education, governments uh, 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 incur some of the costs. Uh, they may contribute um, to the uh, teaching cost, cost of teaching resources in the UK. Increasingly, they have uh, moved away from doing that. Um, they used to invest, invest very heavily um, in, in universities. Um, they also may contribute um, to the second of these uh, by providing, uh, by, by contributing in some way 
um, a li uh, an expense, uh, living allowance, uh, um, living expenses, uh, which reduce for you the opportunity cost um, of your uh, um, of your foregone earnings. And just to uh, give us a, a sort of um, uh, a, a picture of the size of these costs in the economy as a whole, this shows us the spending on tertiary education in the OECD um, in 2013. Um, it's maybe a bit hard to read, but um, the country that spends the highest proportion um, of GDP on tertiary education is the United States with about 2.6%. Um, slightly less than 1% of uh, GDP um, is public spending on education, and the blue parts of the bars are the private spending on education. So in actu actually, in the US, private spending outweighs uh, um, public spending on higher education. Um, the country that's a bit, uh, uh, spends the least in the OECD, perhaps surprisingly, is Italy, um, with just about 1% of GDP being spent on education. And you can see the majority of, of, of countries' um, public spending outweighs private spending. In the UK, nowadays, only just um, that, but somewhat more than half, let's say 60% um, of spending on education is still spent by the government. What about the benefits? Um, so just briefly, let's try and enumerate some of the benefits of education. Um, the, the kind of economic focus um, is very often on the fact that um, you earn more. And this is a private benefit. As a result of being educated, you, your uh, earnings throughout your life are likely to be higher than they would otherwise have been. It's not straightforward to me measure that, um, because of course, when you, if you simply compare the people who are educated and the people who aren't, you have a, a problem of a selection effect. The people who uh, are educated might have earned quite a lot more than the others anyway, possibly. Um, but uh, the estimates taking in, into account those kinds of effects are that universe, the higher education uh, um, in OECD countries very much uh, uh, increases uh, people's potential earnings. And then, sorry, there are um, the other kind of private benefits, um, the enjoyment you get from being here and learning and feeling that you're learning new things, um, and the extent to which your education contributes to the quality of your life in the future, including um, through uh, better health. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence that better educated people uh, enjoy better health. And then there are the, uh, 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 the, the other social benefits. Um, in, in fact, by social benefits of education, we mean the private benefits together with what are known as external benefits. That's to say, uh, when you're educated, that may have benefits for others in some way. So we could start there by thinking about um, the contribution that your education makes to the economy. Um, and uh, at least in part, that's going to be captured by the increased earnings that you have. If, you, if we think that you are worth more to the economy because you're educated, uh, you can take your education and your skills where you like, um, and uh, competition uh, for those skills will tend to mean that you are compensated for them. Um, now, there are economists can, can uh, argue endlessly over the extent to which uh, what people paid actually, uh, people are paid actually does represent um, what they're worth to the economy. Um, but uh, certainly, a big part uh, uh, of what you're worth 
to, to the economy is expressed in, in what you earn. Um, is therefore a, a private rather than a social benefit, though there, there may be further benefits on top of that. And then other external benefits, easy to write down, uh, um, not so easy to kind of pin down what they mean, but uh, let's talk about uh, the transmission of cultural values through education, increased social cohesion, um, knowledge spillovers, what you know and uh, 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 communicate to others um, because of your education. Um, educated people commit less crime. Um, uh, the political process perhaps uh, uh, requires an educated populace. Um, and uh, again, health, increased health um, is, is a, uh, can be a, a spillover from education. So why do we need um, to apply economics to higher education um, and okay. um, the, uh, uh, the, in, in the context of UK higher education policy, um, I think that the argument is really very straightforward. The costs are high, the benefits are quite hard to measure, um, and not only that, they're very unequally distributed. Um, however, they're not only private benefits, um, that we've identified some benefits to society as a whole from individuals being uh, uh, educated. So an important question for higher education policy um, is who should bear the costs? Um, and that depends on thinking about this kind of cost-benefit analysis. Um, arguments for government subsidies to higher education, there are essentially uh, uh, two. One is um, that because um, education does bring, bring benefits which go beyond the individual, um, then society as a whole should help the individual in, and share the costs um, of, of, of uh, investment in education. Otherwise, the individual won't have sufficient incentives on their own to undertake that investment. So that's one kind of argument. Um, the second says, well, Irrespective of whether um, education brings uh, benefits to beyond the individual or not, um, then it's going to be difficult for people to finance their own education. Uh, the costs come first, the benefits come later. Education is a risky investment, and people have limited access um, to borrowing to finance their education, and this especially hits those from backgrounds, from poorer backgrounds, people who have fewer resources initially, and probably less access to credit. Um, than those from wealthier uh, households. Those are the arguments for the government helping to um, provide higher education. The arguments against, um, well, really the, the main argument here, and the one that has very much um, prevailed in the UK um, in, in the last uh, 15 or more years, um, is that the majority of the benefits are private. Um, individuals do extremely well out of their education. And if we um, uh, uh, subsidise education, uh, higher education, then what that does is essentially to transfer resources from the people who are uneducated, who are helping to pay, to the people who are educated uh, and uh, uh, receive those resources. It's a transfer from the rich, from the poor to the rich. Um, so regressive. And the reason this has become such a big issue um, in, in this country is this uh, inexorable increase from, in the 1950s, um, about 4% of, of, um, uh, of, of young people going to university 
to close to 50% uh, now. So um, the problem here um, is that uh, financing education for these 50% uh, is not at all the same as financing it for 5% when the costs were smaller and could be spread across a much uh, larger, larger number of people. Why should the half of the people who are not educated help to pay for the half and half? Um, and that's why we've seen um, a shift towards individuals bearing more of the costs. Uh, one thing to note here, though, um, is the kind of education people are getting in universities now that 50% uh, of them are there is not perhaps the same as what it was when there were only 5%. Um, so here is my conclusion, and I think I'm just about within time. Um, my conclusion is we do really need to focus on economic outcomes when we think about education, even in the context of education here in Oxford, where we might have kind of some higher ideals perhaps because we have to know how much public spending on higher education can be justified and what the public is getting in return for what it's putting in. The problem here is that the economic outcomes are the much easier ones to measure, um, and they're also very important because they're so unequally distributed. Yes, the social and cultural outcomes are really important, and they're important to an economic analysis, even if we're not talking about economic benefits. But the challenge is how to address those uh, distributional problems and not lose sight of the wider benefits of education. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor, for those enlightening words. Indeed, I mean, it's great to uh, get the economist's point of view in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Makes me wonder where we all fit in that macro-level uh, picture. Um, we now have Ms. Garima Jaju with us to share her thoughts. Garima is a default candidate in the Department of International Development and is an MCR member here. Her research revolves around questions of imagination, practices, and politics of work and work identities. She's just come back from her fieldwork in North India, where she worked with young workers in the new sector, in the new work sector of organized retail uh, through an ethnographic inquiry. It would be great to have you with us. Uh, 15 minutes. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. It's quite interesting that I should follow Professor Stevens because I'm going to do two things quite opposite to what she did. Uh, one, I will be approaching the two questions here today from an anthropological uh, point of view, not an economic one. And uh, second, I will not be answering the questions at all. Uh, as are we taught to become economically viable products? What is the purpose of education? Um, I will not be presenting my own judgment in the matter, but instead try and understand, as uh, anthropologists are well trained to do, how other people are thinking about these questions and uh, how they're articulating their response to these questions. Um, so at the very outset, I want to establish that my research and uh, today's presentation will not be in the sphere of um, a normative discussion of what education should do. Uh, what its purposes should be, what are the kinds of products it should aim to produce, if at all. And it will also not be in the manner of an evaluative appraisal of how well education fares. Uh, does it manage to achieve its purposes, however defined through normative reasoning? Um, instead, I will try and uh, understand from a close ethnographic distance how people are behaving on the ground, how things are unfolding on the ground. 
And um, the ground for my purposes here today is very broadly the case of developing countries such as India, but also more specifically and more manageably perhaps, um, the case of young Muslim men, um, many of whom come from very marginalized families, uh, leading very, very precarious lives, uh, studying in madrasas in West Bengal, um, India. Um, this is West Bengal in the east of India, for those who don't know. And this is a classic Google image of madrasas. Madrasas are, uh, some of you will know, are Islamic seminaries um, engaged in the teaching of Islamic theology, Islamic law, Arabic, the reading of the Quran, uh, etc. Um, once at the throbbing center of social, religious, intellectual, and political life in South Asia, um, we find madrasas have been pushed to the side. And in its current very outmoded form, uh, they are seen as blocking its students in very deep, inescapable poverty tracks, and therefore has generated a lot of rhetoric around reforming these institutions. Uh, madrasas have traditionally operated, and many continue to do so, may have traditionally operated in a network of informal institutions that are run by the community on community donations. Um, but now these madrasas are increasingly being brought into the fold of government reform. Uh, reform that is responding to the sort of growing demand of, of uh, educational intervention, which could take very many forms, but usually you see the government coming in and trying to formalize and recognize the dignities that are imparted by these institutions, uh, do some curriculum interventions, so some English will be introduced, some computer sciences, etc. The stated objective of these educational reforms, as one finds in pamphlets, political speeches, or formal interviews, is um, to help, very broadly, is to help marginalize these, uh, mainstream these very marginalized populations, uh, make them capable of accessing more, more sustainable livelihoods, and help them fight the curse of poverty. You know, this is classic development language. They fight the curse of poverty. They will become capable in a classic sort of human development terms. They'll become capable to get jobs. They'll become capable to have better lives. Um, so of course, this kind of reasoning follows very naturally from the growing support for education as a development strategy, which is quite uncritical, quite blind sometimes. in this growing public consensus that education is the most effective of development strategies. Um, anyway, at the receiving end of all this, this mass of thinking about education as a public good, at the, uh, at the end of this thinking, at the end of all the policy recommendations around all the budgetary allowances, you will find my informants, who are final year graduates, fresh students out of madrasas. And the attempt in my presentation today would be to try and sort of foreground their experiences, their articulations of what education means. Uh, by engaging them on their uh, on their terms. Um, so this is one of the madrasas I was working in, Alia University, which was first Calcutta Madrasa, and then after reform, it's Alia University. And uh, these are just some of my forms. I don't like them to be faceless, so I put some pictures here. And um, for them, post reform, um, it's their it's, so uh, reform at Alia specifically is recognition of these degrees that are given, and also making them equivalent to degrees that are given out of mainstream education institutions. And that, for my informants, is the most important aspect of their education. In their own words, uh, they say it's the government's stamp on their degrees that makes these degrees very real. 
it gives them some weight, it renders the degree of some use, it renders them of some use, and most importantly, lets them command respect in the employment market. It is now with these government-recognized degrees that they are employable. Their previous traditional madrasa education would have left them unemployable and a waste. This degree opens many doors. These are things I would hear repeatedly. Uh, this, of course, is not just a very specific understanding of what education is. Here understood uh, as near, uh, merely as a recognized degree, but also it's a very specific understanding of what employment means. Students coming out of traditional madrasas actually never go unemployed. Madrasas, which are always the purpose towards meeting a community's religious needs, students coming out of there get immediately employed as imams in mosques or religious speakers, religious counselors, or teachers in other madrasas. But these, of course, are not real jobs for my informants in shining, booming India. What they would rather have are white-collar salaried employment, which they consider as real jobs. So going back to today's question, what is the purpose of education? Well, for my informants, it's very much that it makes them economically viable. And there's great celebration in becoming these economically viable products. Uh, here, I would, I would invite you to appreciate the cultural politics of this, instead of just uh, dismissing it as a very narrow or a flawed interpretation of what education means or what em employment means. I would invite you to read it more sensitively as an important weapon of the week, so to say, uh, an important exercise by my informants in contesting their now very long-drawn marginality in society, economically, socially, politically, and then in asserting themselves. And this they do in many ways, but uh, just to highlight maybe a few, uh, many times they would try and make it very clear to me that they are very distinct from students coming out of traditional madrasas. They would very favorably compare their own status as employable people against the unemployable side, uh, assumed to be the side of society, very side students coming out of these traditional madrasas. These traditional madrasas, or Kharji madrasas as they are called. Um, students in these Kharji madrasas, in their preoccupation with just religious education, had completely forgotten about worldly matters, they would say. The worldly ignorance of Kharji madrasas would then be compared with their own cosmopolitan awareness when they would say they better prepare themselves, they better equip themselves to deal with this material world where they can now participate economically and open for themselves chances of social mobility. They would also very, very often assert an equivalence with students who are coming out of mainstream education systems to which their degrees have now been made equivalent. So a very dominant sense of that now all is same, nothing is different. What is different, they would ask. A bachelor in history, a bachelor in uh, mathematics, social sciences, and a bachelor in Islamic theology, if you like. Uh, they would point to similarities in the nomenclature of the final degree, the manner in which these degrees are being given out, some even into the final design of the certificate. The point being, of course, that just like these students from mainstream education institutions, and very much unlike their own previous self and other students coming out of traditional madrasas, my informants have become employable, economically viable, and eligible to participate in the, the, the spoils of socio-economic development that they perceive to, uh, 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 to have underway around them, or at least uh, the media would have us all believe. 
I would like you to note here that the main axis of this kind of thinking, this kind of cultural politics, uh, it rests very much on the question of becoming employable and not employed so much. It's the politics of the employable person and not, or not of the already employed. Uh, there is a dark twist to the story here. Even though my informants are very enthusiastically celebrating the opening of these wide range of jobs in public and private sectors, I seriously consider and pursue only very few of these jobs and successfully secure even fewer. So most of my, my informants actually go unemployed. This is of course supporting the classic thesis of social reproduction privilege where my informants find themselves uh, lacking in the social and cultural capital one needs to get these jobs or the economic resources that you would need to navigate very unfamiliar and sometimes of course quite hostile. Um, and they of course find themselves lacking in economic resources that you need to oil these networks very unfamiliar, very hostile uh, to get to these jobs. So the limited number of jobs that are created uh, in India's very infamous jobless growth economy are cornered by those who are more privileged than my informants. So employable, yes, uh, eligible, yes, economically viable, yes, but ultimately unemployed. How then do we understand the politics of becoming employable when my informants face impending unemployment? To answer that question, I feel it's important to appreciate how the notion of becoming employable is rooted not so much in what employment is sought and secured, but the possibility that it could be any. The traditional madrasa education system is seen to restrict my informants on the fringes of society by denying them even the possibility of participating in the economy. It is this opening of the doors that is cherished, even if my students, find, uh, my informants find themselves constrained in their ability to pass through these metaphorical doors. It's the symbolic opening of roots of upward mobility, which is crucial in signaling a shedding of the oppressions of the past. Uh, many would also say that unemployment is a national problem faced by everyone. Aren't doctors sitting at home? Aren't people with engineering degrees sitting at home? So we're, we're employable like them, but also unemployed like them. So there is no difference. Again, this is an exercise in stressing equivalence with people coming out of mainstream education systems. So maybe just as a final comment, I have to admit that the durability of such a strategy, of such cultural politics, is uh, quite suspect in the face of long-term unemployment. If I go and meet my informants after 10 years and they're still unemployed, Will they still be celebrating having become employable? I don't know. So yes, my research is grounded very much in a moment in time, but it has tried to capture in that moment a crack, a kind of an opening that challenges very rigid structures of social privilege, opened by my informants, which all kinds of sort of education rhetoric is so desperately trying to save. So I don't know about cost-benefit analysis and because it sort of, I think, misses the politics around things, but when you scratch the surface, you see a lot of very innovative cultural thinking in how informants, my informants who are very precariously placed, are trying to sort of navigate through, uh, through society and the economy. Uh, well, thank you. That was really exciting, Garima. I mean, to give us a snapshot of what's happening in the grassroots and to tell us that in our developing country setup where social capital, cultural capital, and privileges are important, uh, perhaps becoming economically viable is the weapon of the week that we use to achieve social mobility.
well. Uh, we now move on to David. Uh, David Weston is Chief Executive of Future Development Trust, uh, and he also founded this trust in 2012 with an aim to improve the professional skills of teachers so that they can transform their practice and through that transform the experience of their pupils. David was at Lincoln College between 1998 and 2003. Uh, he did a master's in engineering and computing then and then went on to take a postgraduate certificate in education to become a teacher in science and mathematics. Over to you. Thank you very much. I'm a bit disappointed I have no slides, so I'm really sorry. I could tell you some wonderful things about psychology and listening to me instead of not having dual attention on the slides. So I'm going to claim this is a great thing to do. Um, so yes, my background was, uh, I came to Lincoln, um, I was a maths and physics teacher for nine years. Um, and I got very interested in how teachers develop or don't develop. Um, and I thought, well, I want to go and do something about this. It's a big issue. Teachers go into schools, don't get much development on the job, and then teachers leave, or they go off and do something else, like me. So I set up a charity called the Teacher Development Trust. And through that, we've worked for five years trying to say, how can we change the system's attitude to the way we work in our schools and developing the teachers who are really good resources? Um, two other bits of background then, sort of why I'm going to say what I'm going to. Through that, one of the things that um, I was very privileged to do was I was commissioned by the uh, coalition government um, to lead a government review into how we develop teachers in our schools, which is a very interesting process. And you begin to identify all the different levers that government is looking for in schools, whether it's we want the teachers to stop being so angry with us or the treasury would like to get some more cash. Um, or would like to spend less cash, so that was very interesting. And also, um, more recently, I've, uh, well, post-Brexit, a little bit politically involved and got involved with the Lib Dems, who actually consume whatever you like about my Brexit views. Um, but that's been very interesting from the point of view of then thinking the policy point of view. Actually, having been in the education system for a long time, what's the kind of the bigger policy picture? So that's the direction I'm coming from. In all honesty, when I hear the question, what's the purpose of education, my heart sinks. Because it usually means you're about to get into a very long, dull conversation which never reaches a conclusion. Never reaches a conclusion because education is forming the next generation of society. So the sort of education you want depends on the sort of society you want, depends on the sort of values you have. I've been jotting down, I jotted down about 10 purposes of education before I arrived, and I've jotted down another six um, so it could be, is it preparing for academia coming to Oxbridge, for example? Is it just to go straight into the jobs? Um, is it pure economic benefit? X amount of education means X amount of pounds or dollars. Um, is it a sense of citizenship? Is it something which we instill a sense of the tribe so that each group feels their a sense of belonging um, and this, this social cohesion? Is it maybe, if you're at the, at the other end of polit political persuasion, is it perhaps we want people to be rebels and rule breakers and change the terrible things that have been done in society so far? Um, is it the means to safeguard tradition? Is it the means to say we've always done this and we must continue to do this and pass on these traditions and instill those in you? Perhaps possibly religious. Um, it could be passing on accumulated knowledge, saying, well, look, we learned a lot before and the next generation needs to know that and then build on it, so maybe we pass that on. Maybe it's we want a new generation to be innovative. Maybe it's creating a new elite or governing generation, which everyone outside Oxford assumes Oxford is trying to do secretly. Um, maybe it's social mobility. Maybe we're actually saying the key reason here is to level the playing field, create social mobility. Maybe it's happiness. 
Maybe we don't actually care about anything other than we want citizens to have well-being and be happy. Maybe we want health. Uh, possibly education could be an export, huge export for Britain. We have, uh, Britain has one of the biggest reputations in the world for education. Everyone wants to find out about the uh, British education system. Um, so maybe it's an export, maybe it's a soft power exercise. Get everyone from across the world to come to Britain, make them love us and then go back home and continue to love us. Maybe it's childcare, maybe just that they actually don't really care, just get the kids out of the parents' hair so they can keep earning for a while. Um, or maybe it's, you know, embed you in the machine, be subservient to the man, you know, it could be all of those things. Now, any of those things you could argue are the purposes of education. And the trouble is, even within the education discourse, we find Teachers can't agree. So actually, when you get teachers together and say what curriculum do we want, you get one group of teachers who say, actually, I desperately want to help my own people create jobs. Another who say, I feel very proud about history and I want to pass that on. And others who say, society is awful and terrible and horrible things have happened and I want my children to question everything. I don't want to pass on the things that have happened. I want them to only know the bad things that have happened so they can change them. And you genuinely get these different discourses. So when you say, Let's start with the purpose of education. You kind of go, well, look, we're not going to make it. You're not going to reach an agreement on it. 